the Saturday panel on Off The Ball. There's a growing hostility towards cyclists. We're yeah. somehow seen as, as a nuisance when in fact we're just people trying to get to work. I've never ever gotten one bad word said to me about my sexuality or from the opposition or from actually in one bad time nearly the girl was marking me so tightly I was like I have a girlfriend. <laughs> I'm not the person I was 10 years ago and that doesn't worry me. I know I can play good enough golf. Don't miss the panel every Saturday afternoon only on Off The Ball. The OTB Podcast Network. Oh, the shape that will get. You can all the fans there. Can we not lock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33. The football happy hour here in Off The Ball. End a call here with you for the next hour or so. Now, we talk a lot about the legends of the game on this show, but we've never really touched on the heroes of the women's game. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. To do so, I'm joined on the line by Kathleen McNamee. Kathleen, how are you getting on? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Always enjoy an opportunity to talk about these women. (laughs) Well, that's it. They don't get talked about enough. And for a bit of context, context going into this, it's hard to find footage and it's hard to find stats and it's hard to find reports on most of these women. Even from about 10 years ago, it's hard to find much on the women's game at all. We don't have the benefit of watching old YouTube clips of like we do for Maradona or for Pele or whatever. So we're basically, I'm, I'm putting my, uh, my knowledge in your hands and hoping that you can get us through the game. So essentially what we're going to do is we're going to go through the, who are the legends of the women's game? If I, if I asked you to pick out the Messi, Ronaldo, Pele, Maradona, who are, who are they? And then who are the current crop who are absolutely dominating and starting to come into the public eye a bit more as well. So we'll start with the legends of the game then. So I suppose, firstly, before we get into it, how long have you been watching the women's game? Like uh, how long has it actually been available to the public? In terms of how long I've actually been watching it, it hasn't been that long in the sense that I just haven't been able to see games because they haven't been publicly aired. You know, it's very much been kind of catching glimpses of these on YouTube. If like fans go to games, they'll like upload random clips. So I would only say it's probably in the last like four or five years that unless you go to the games in terms of watching it on TV and especially here in Ireland, if you were looking across to try and catch some of the English games, like it wasn't easy at all. Um, but in terms of following it, it has been like a long term love of mine. Like I always used to go and watch games with my dad or like watch games on the TV. And I'd always be like, where are the women? Why aren't mm. they watching? Why aren't they we watching them play as well? So it has been very much something that's only come to the fore in the last couple of years. But hopefully with the new broadcast deal that's just been announced in the WSL, it means that they are going to be able to see these games and it won't just be, you know, a random Champions League quarterfinal at 12 o'clock on a Wednesday when mm. <laughs> anyone outside of me who has to watch these games for work can't actually see them. Um, yeah. But- yeah, it's an interesting one because, I mean, as a researcher for Off The Ball, when we do anything to do with the women's game, it's double, maybe triple as hard to get any sort of information at all, be that match reports, be that stats, be that even just, you know, who, who these players are, what what club they play for, what what uh, what kind of formation the managers are are playing for the, the team. It's, it's, it's a real frustration for me as a researcher. So I can imagine as a fan, it must be doubly frustrating. 
Yeah, it's impossible. And even like I spend most of my days covering men's matches, but also a very big part of my job is the women's game because it is something like within our team that I probably have the biggest knowledge on. And sometimes the guys in work don't fully understand how long it actually takes me to just like do a match report or write a profile on someone because you'll read one set a website and it'll say certain figures and then you'll read the next one and suddenly five extra goals have appeared or something and you're like what is the actual truth and a lot of the time the best place to get this information is actually like bloggers fan groups who have followed these teams like gone to the games and kept their own records rather than maybe the traditional routes that you would get kind of professional scores from for the men's game so it definitely is improving but it can be very frustrating and sometimes it leaves you wanting to pull your hair out mm. a bit yeah i can imagine so let's get started then into the legends of the game then who do you want to start with we'll start with um michelle Akers. so she is kind of one of the original u.s women's national team stars like when she started playing for the u.s women's national team there wasn't even a world cup competition i think the only competition they actually had to compete in was like a random tournament in italy where they were given you know knockoff men's jerseys that were i think i remember reading a profile with her once and she described them she was like they were slightly off colors they were kind of dirty they had to like actually tailor the jerseys themselves to fit them which is a bit wild when you think about it in the context of what u.s women's soccer is like now but she's probably one of the original stars and kind of brought that team through their very successful well I mean US Women's National Team has been successful for the last two decades mm-hmm. but I suppose that early like late 90s early 2000s team she was one of their like key players um, and she's just again she also scored twice in the first ever Women's World Cup final so I think for even for that alone she deserves a spot on this legendary list What position did she play? So she started out as a striker, but she actually suffered really badly with injuries. I think over the course of her career, she's had something like 30 surgeries on her knee. Sorry, over the course of her career and then afterwards, 30 surgeries on her knee, like eight on her shoulder, which she very weirdly dislocated while doing a lap of honor around a pitch and a fan like jumped on her and dislocated her shoulder. It's so mad. And like it kept her out of really big games and stuff in the future. And it just shows how you know you see crowds running onto the pitch and you're like oh that's really cool but also (laughs) slightly dangerous at times and so she started off in that very much like central attacking role but then was moved out more into the midfield for a variety of reasons they already had quite a lot of good attackers and they kind of the U.S. Women's National Team at the time needed someone more in that central midfield role who could kind of dictate the play and also to take her out of harm's way she also suffered really badly from concussions and has kind of had chronic fatigue syndrome ever since her playing days so she is very much a warrior of the game and uh, I don't know if putting her in the midfield actually stopped her from getting too many more injuries but she did say herself as well she likes getting stuck into players a bit so there could have been you know she got as good as she gave Mm. yeah the U.S. national team is obviously that's going to be the team that dominates because I mean that's where I think everyone associates women's football with um, uh, Mia Ham is the, the second person on your list. We'll get to her in a second, but I, I suppose most people would remember the national team or the U.S. national team at, at the World Cup and Brandy Chastain's uh, famous photo and her famous pe- penalty. And that sort of catapulted the women's game into, into the worldview, I suppose. And I would, I, I, I guess that they would be considered sort of the trailblazers for women's football on the world stage, at least, would they? Yeah, very much so. And like that game 
the World Cup that you mentioned, not only was it the first time that, you know, it kind of came into people's consciousness in the US, it was kind of world consciousness because like the World Cups before that weren't actually televised. That match, like the first World Cup that I was talking about for Michelle Akers there, they had to fax home results and stuff because no newspapers covered it in the US. You know, there was no television showing it. Like, could you imagine scoring two goals in a World Cup and then having to like hit the fax machine and be like, <laughs> hey, mom and dad, <laughs> guess what? Um, so they are very much responsible for bringing it to national attention. And I think... Sometimes we forget what that group of players actually did in the sense that Title IX did a lot in the US to bringing women's game to the forefront, much more so than, say, in England, where, like, obviously the FA had banned women's football. So they are, like, a few steps ahead, for sure. Mm -hmm. But also these players were very responsible for that. Like, Michelle Akers, she used to travel around the country and go to, like, industry uh, conferences where there would be big brand sponsors and, like, basically pitch herself to them. So, to, like, Umbro, to Nike, to all these things, say, hey, you should sponsor me. I'm going to be an incredible player. Here's all the reasons why it's great. And, like, she traveled the States doing that. And eventually Umbro did pick her up and they sponsored her for the entirety of her career. But she was also very responsible within that team for, you know, talking about getting better um, working conditions, getting better pay. She was one of eight players that went on strike before the 96 Olympics. So she was almost kind of like the original Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan and stuff. And she was at the time labeled as being greedy and of asking for more than she should get. But at the end of the day, without that sort of um, pushing from her and from other players on the team to get these games on TV, to get them in front of fans, we might not have the situation mm. we do now where things are slowly but still improving. And all those girls that are on the, or all those women that are on the US Women's National Team now would like they have her to look back on and say that's our inspiration that's just not only was she like an amazing player who won all these incredible accolades both individual and team she was also fighting for the same sort of equality that we're still fighting for now yeah and so sometimes that off-field work is more important than the actual on-field and the sponsorship is vital when it comes to that because i mean if if you think about for example in the 90s michael jordan's deal with Nike is what made him so big in the US and they, they always come back to that Republicans buy sneakers two line and sometimes sponsorship can act more for the sport than actually on the pitch because uh, let's face it a lot of people weren't seeing these women play on the pitch anyway but it, it definitely does help that uh, she was a good footballer as well because you need that to get sponsorship. Uh, in terms of Mia Hamm, she was part of the US national team as well. Um, what kind of, kind of player was she? Mia Hamm was interesting because I think she was like the kind of almost next step from players like Michelle Akers. Very different personality-wise, but in terms of she was like the US women's national team golden girl who, you know, started playing when she was really young. I think the first cap was she was like 15 or something, like super young, and but then went on to win all these incredible tournaments. You know, she has two, two Olympic medals, two World Cup medals. Uh, when they did the like FIFA 100 players, like she was one of the players that Pele picked out as one of, and her and uh, Michelle was actually the only two women on the list, both picked out by Pele. So props to him for that one. <laughs> um, but she was very, like her skill was the fact that she was so agile. She was so quick on the ball. Her dribbling and her passing were absolutely like pinpoint perfect. Um, and she like, she just gave so much. I think she was one of the more, 
not quiet players on the team, but I think she was very much a leader by showing what she could do. Um, I know there's a story that like after the 99 World Cup final, she like played incredibly in front of 90,000 fans. But after, at the end of the game, she actually collapsed from dehydration and had to like go in, be like taken care of, looked and had to sleep for like 12 hours and then enjoying it and all the celebrations because she had just given so much of herself on the pitch um and like you talk to people about Mia Hammond it's very she is very much the kind of aspirational figure in the terms of like the footballing sex when she finished playing she like stayed in football so you know she like she's a global ambassador for Barcelona she's obviously involved in Angel City which is one of the new um National Women's Soccer League teams that's coming to the U.S. that has you know Natalie Portman and all these big names attached so her career has been about you know being an amazing player and being excellent in everything she does but also being that kind of poster girl and that role Mm. model for younger players and in terms of you mentioned there uh, the English football ban, which is an interesting topic in its own because, I mean, what, what a crazy decision that was. Um, there's an, a noticeable difference between the women's game in America and the women's game in, in England. And I think we're starting to learn a bit more about that now that we have actually got Irish players playing in England and they're, they've also played in America and they, they're able to explain the difference. But um, in terms of the third name on the list, Kelly Smith, she's English, is she? Yeah, Kelly Smith is like an English legend. I would say she's probably one of the first international players that brought that whole American style of thinking about football across the water. Um, She first went over for university, college, um, I think it was Seton Hall University where she started out and she just broke records left, right and centre. Like they've retired her jersey there because she's so good at what she does um again she's the sort of player that you read profiles about her and she's always mentioned in the same sort of sentences like Maradona Zidane Pele like all these very big names um her career was unfortunate in some ways in that she was quite blighted by injuries throughout it um but I included her because I think she is very much an interesting story and that a lot of the time I think we have really um clean cut characters in the women's game and I don't know is that just like the marketing is slightly more advanced because they've kind of seen all the mistakes that the men's game went through and they kind of post them up as these perfect pictures but Kelly Smith wasn't that you know she has talked very openly about her struggles with alcohol addiction that started like when she was quite young in university and continued all the way throughout her career and kind of when it she because she got so many bad injuries like she really bad broken leg and Achilles injuries and different things like that she it, they, it would flare up then but she's never really hidden from that fact you know she's always talked about it very honestly and has still managed to have an incredible career she's the English women's top scorer she you know she <laughs> when she first went over to America she was asked you know why you come to America why not stay in England she was like the game's a joke over there and English people were horrified that someone would say this because it's, mm-hmm. it's not really in their sensibility as well but uh, like in the years since many people have been like well she is right because it was a joke at that stage in comparison to the setup in the US and she kind of she kept going back there and I think that's probably what benefited her so much in her game that she was playing at a higher level even though in the US they had their own issues with leagues starting up and collapsing and starting up again it was still always a much more developed game than what it was over here until now where you could argue that they're kind of 
toe for toe as to who mm-hmm. is the better league. Yeah, and you just think about what the English league could be if they just hadn't hadn't have cancelled or abandoned completely. It's yeah. it was it was such a such a bizarre decision at the time that you know it it just spoke for the the time that it is. But I suppose the three of those people when you when you break them down and talk about them the way that you have so Mia Hamm obviously like a really brilliant player at the time and the poster guard for US football at the time. Michelle Akers, a trailblazer when it came to, you know, building up women's rights in terms of in, in football when it came, came to sponsorship or just improving the game and that. And then Kelly Smith, you know, sort of outspoken and willing to say what what she she wanted to say and also a brilliant footballer. And yet those stories just haven't been told. So yeah. it's it's always it's always an interesting one for me because there are clearly stories and narratives within the English and in, in the women's game that just have gone a little bit astray, astray because you know maybe it wasn't to the same level as the men's. Yeah, it's like it's something that I find equally frustrating and also quite fun because for me, someone who writes about women all the time or who follows the game there's just so many unexplored avenues that you sit down to think of pitches for a pitch meeting and you're like wow this is incredible I think with the likes of Mia Hamm and Michelle Akers and that whole U.S. women's national team definitely there is a lot more about them and there's a lot more about their career and um, I think there's actually Netflix or someone is doing a documentary mm. coming soon about that whole team which is going to be incredible but again especially with the European side there's just so many unexplored stories there and so many great players and it's unfortunate and I think there have been a lot of places doing a very good job you know especially in the women's game most of the time it's kind of what I said earlier if you're looking for really great writing or really great facts and figures fan sites like bloggers do incredible profiles on these players and because you haven't had the access like they have the access to these players that you know in the men's team because after a game you know if you go see Arsenal or Chelsea after the game all the players are out there along the sides like there's little girls lining up to get jersey signed to get like match program signed if you're like I could just walk over and say hey Sam Kerr can we grab a chat you know it's not like the men's game where you're really far away from these players and that that is going to change in the coming years both for good reasons and for bad reasons you know it's great to have that access but it's also great to see them start playing in bigger stadiums with bigger crowds so I think we're getting better at covering these and there definitely is I look at the amount of journalists that I follow now who are specifically on the women's game and it's an incredible amount to what it was even Mm. five ten years ago when I was you know sitting at home trying to find anything about these players but hopefully things are changing hopefully more outlets are getting on board I mean like even stuff like this this is great this is just one more thing to add in where we're talking about these players and we're giving them the kind of celebrations that they deserve yeah and i suppose the access is an interesting one because um i would always be careful what you wish for in terms of that because i think the women's game is in a really sweet spot now sort of like where the league of ireland is aiming towards and where the sort of the lower level sides in england are are almost getting into this market where there's so many disenfranchised fans from the Premier League because there's a disconnect between them and the players. They don't know them anymore. They're international superstars. They can't get near them. The stadiums are behemoths with 70,000 people and it the match day traditions are sort of being eroded in the Premier League a little bit. And I think that the women's game has a real opportunity with that exact access that you talk about 
um, to, you know, sort of take a few fans away from the Premier League and bring them over to the women's game. Yeah, and I think it's funny because I watch so much football both of both men's and women's. It's basically all day, every day with the amount of games that are on these days. But like you watch the women's game and it's sometimes it's just more fun. Like I know people give off about skill and quality. And yeah, there is a difference, obviously, because it's like less developed. It hasn't had the chance to develop in the way the men's game has for the last 150 whatever years. But sometimes it's just like better crack to watch the matches because you just don't really know what's going to happen. Like there'll be a moment of intense skill followed by something that's just a bit random. Like I'm not sure if you saw last night when Northern Ireland qualified. <laughs> there was, was like this. the greatest tackle I've ever seen in my life. It was just like a Northern Ireland player like running in on the box one on one with her. Ukraine. And you could see her mind working. You could see her go okay, she's like, she's getting past me. And the ball just goes ahead of the Northern Irish player and the Ukrainian girl literally just smashes into her, like rugby tackle style. But you don't really get that in the Premier League anymore. And there's a lot to be said for the, like there is increasing skill. There, these players are incredible technically, but there is also a lot to be said just for some kind of random things to happen in a game. I think you are right, but I think as well, it's not so much about even attracting people away from the Premier League. It's more about like bringing them on board. My thing is always, if you're an Arsenal supporter, if you're a Chelsea supporter, if you're a Man United supporter, you support your team no matter what that is. You know, if you go and you watch the Manchester United Academy play the Man City Academy, you're not going to sit there and go, uh, no, I'm not really that interested. You get into it because you're a fan. So I think it's getting it in front of people. It's, you know, getting them recognizing these names, knowing why Medima being on the bench is absolutely disastrous for Arsenal or knowing why when you see Frank Kirby and Sam Kerr racing up the pitch, knowing why that's a big deal and the goal is probably about to happen. It's the same way when people watch like Kane and Son, when they see the two of them passing around the box, you know something exciting is probably mm-hmm. going to happen. So I think it's more about just showing people the good sides of it and showing the exciting parts of it. And once you start, I think as a sports fan, once you start watching something, you just get into it for whatever quality it is. You know, when Olympics come around, we all suddenly become couch experts on the most random sports possible so I think it's getting people's minds past the point of like this is women's football it's football and you can commentate on it the exact same you would any other game you can make observations you can give off about bad play but you can also appreciate the good play that is there as well Okay, so they are the legends of the women's game. Coming up after the break, we'll discuss the current crop of players in the women's game. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Hi, welcome back to Team 33. End the call here in the company of Kathleen McNamee from ASBN because we are talking about the best women in the game. Before the break, we talked about the legends of the game, the trailblazers like Michelle Akers, Kelly Smith, Mia Hamm. But now we want to talk about the current crop of players. So Kathleen, who are we starting with in terms of the current players playing in the game? The first player I have is Australia and Chelsea's Sam Kerr, um, who holds goal scoring records in both the W League and the US League. She came over to Chelsea last year and to be honest, struggled a bit, but has since talked about it. We interviewed her it was two weeks ago now, and she was saying, you know, I was used to kind of sunny weather. I came to London, it was pouring rain. I was far from my family and then COVID hit. So it wasn't the easiest of starts for her, but you look at the way she has performed this 
season and it's just like she's just so fun to watch and she's so cheeky on the pitch which I enjoy I think sometimes it's hard to see player personalities come through but with her you know she'll she'll score a goal and her tongue is immediately out laughing at like how just almost in awe she is of herself that she's managed to score something um so I just I enjoy watching her play and I think she's part of this kind of I suppose a golden generation of Australian players now you look at their last two international games and you might kind of wonder <laughs> how much of a golden generation they are since they conceded five goals in both, but they were playing very good opposition and she was very much silenced. She like Australia almost played better when she came off the pitch because there wasn't that target for defenses. Um, but I just think Sam Kerr is one of those players who she's still so young. She's going to be around for a lot longer. And this is probably only the basics that we're seeing from her she also has her very iconic backflip celebration which we got to see in the Conta Cup final a couple of weeks ago and we've been waiting a year for it all the fans have been waiting so long and she finally did it although Emma Hayes the Chelsea coach afterwards only gave her a four out of ten so I thought thought that was harsh but you know when you see that image when Chelsea or when Australia got the Women's World Cup rights that image was posted all over the Sydney Opera House that Sam Kerr in her Australian jersey doing a backflip you know I couldn't growing up I could never have imagined seeing that sort of commitment to women's football so that's why she makes it on to like one of my top legendary players of the modern game yeah she she's really good uh, that's a bonus of you know these led these current players you can actually watch them and she's just uh I often think, you know, there's a, there might be a little bit more room for expression in the women's game, um, if you understand what I mean. Like, a, yeah, be that because there's more space on the pitch or whatever. It just seems the players just have that little bit more confidence or freedom to do what they like. And Sam Kerr is definitely someone that that gets that freedom to do that. In terms of Fran Kirby, then, um, what's the story with her? So Fran Kirby, I think, is one of those players who kind of flies under everyone's radar for whatever reason, because she's absolutely incredible. And I think that partnership that she's built with Sam Curry this year has very much brought her more into public consciousness. She started out Reading, has been with Chelsea since 2015 and has always been like consistently there, but she actually, um, so like last year suffered a really bad heart condition. Um, she was like sleeping for 16 hours a day. She, you know, was getting really bad heart palpitation. She basically thought her career was over and luckily it's not. Luckily she has recovered really well from that and she, you know, is managing it and everything. But I think it's almost given her a whole new like joy for football and joy for the game. You know, you see her then she literally scampers up the wings like it's the only way I can describe the way she runs she like she'll scamper up the wings and you can just see her like registering she's an incredible football mind where everyone is around her and she'll spot like Sam Kerr or Vanilla Harder again she's playing in a team of incredible players so like that is very helpful but mm-hmm. I think you watching England's internationals the last couple of days she was one of the standout players just because she was so quick on her feet she was basically pulling the team through herself just with her performances and you look at what she's gone through in the last year or so to get to this point and I just think it's really admirable and she also lost her mum when she was really young you know they were in talking to a scout and her mum just dropped dead so she's gone through incredible hardship in her life but just seems incredibly passionate about football and passionate about her game and 
you you think of Fran Kirby and you're like you, I don't think many people actually realize this season you know she's got 14 goals but she also has 10 assists so she is very much mm. the moneymaker for Chelsea in a lot of the things they do which again is saying something in a team that is so stacked with the talent yeah I think Chelsea's women seem they they seem to be the ones that have their, I don't know if the, I'm correct in saying this, but they seem to be the ones that have their house in order the best in terms of the coaching ticket that they have and just the progression of players that seems to be coming through at the club. Uh, one player that probably would be a household name, I'd say, um, and someone that has been, you know, I, I've seen her tagged as the, you know, the Ronaldo of the women's game and as Vivienne Medima for Arsenal. She's very tall, very skinny, but she doesn't play like a Peter Crouch. She's sort of built like Peter Crouch, but she doesn't play like him. That's a very good one. I actually hadn't heard that before, but yeah, she, I think the thing that always strikes me about Medina, but like you said, she almost looks uncomfortable in her body sometimes, the way she runs and she like always is slightly slouched, but then you see what she's doing with her feet and it's just incredible. I think of like the North London Derby a couple of weeks ago where Katie McCabe swung a corner into the box and she just hooked her foot around it. And it just, it looks so casual on first viewing and it was only going back and watching it a few times that I was like, Christ, like the skill to actually hook the, her foot. So the ball was like past her and she just managed to grab it and fire it into the net. She's just an incredibly skilled player. And it's so interesting because I don't know, is it just that she's so used to being as good as she is or what it is, but she just doesn't even really react when she scores anymore. She's just kind of like, yes, like a small air punch and everyone else is in on top of her kind of saying, you know, this is incredible. And she just has this kind of little smile on her face, which I love. Um, and if you watch her on like social media and stuff, she's actually very funny. She's very dry humor. But yeah, what she's done in the WSL in the couple of seasons she's been with Arsenal is absolutely insane. You know, she's broken a record that, has taken players like a hundred games to achieve. And she's done it in like, I think it was 57 games. Um, so I hope she stays around her contracts kind of up in the air about what she's going to do next, but she seems to like being at Arsenal. I presume it'll probably have something to do with whoever the new coach is that mm. comes in at the end of the season, but she's just so fun to watch. And I think probably if Arsenal didn't have her, especially in the last season, they would have struggled a lot more, which is funny because it's kind of that shifting of the women's game where Arsenal for so many years have been the team to beat. And now we're kind of sliding much like the men's, but haven't slid quite so far yet. Um, are kind of sliding down the pecking order a little mm. bit. So definitely she is one of my favorite players to watch and probably, uh, probably one of my favorite players in the entire game. Who would be the, you know, the Real Madrid Barcelona of the women's game in terms of, you know, if there's a player like, say, Mohamed Salah in the in the men's game who's outperforming himself in the Premier League and doing brilliantly, and there's only a couple of clubs in the world that can afford to actually buy him, and that tends to be Real Madrid, Barcelona, PSG, that's, that's the clubs they get linked with. Is there a women's variation of that? Um, I know Lyon were dominating in Europe for a long time, but budgetary-wise, is there a team that, that you know dominates like that way? It would definitely probably be Lyon or else... Chelsea and Manchester City more so in the last couple of years. Um, Leon would be the original ones who dominated in that field. You look at that team and the the contracts that they hand out are incredible. And there's lots of like different things. Jean-Michel Olas, who's the president there, has always been very keen that 
he just wants his team to be the best. He doesn't really care if they're making him money. He's like, I'm going to, I want them to be the best. So I will treat them like the best. And at the end of last season, he got them all like, you know, those American style championship. Oh yeah. I did see that. Yeah. 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 He got them all those with like their initials and their numbers and, um, Otto Hergerberg, who's been out for the last year or so with an ACL injury, uh, just as Chelsea brought Pernilla Harder in, and you know, it was a big deal, it's the biggest ever transfer in women's football history. Like a month later, Otto Hergerberg got a contract that made her the highest paid women's footballer ever. So, you know, it's very much tit for tat. And I think the both the owner of Chelsea and Leon, I think they quite enjoy beating each other no matter what the race is. If it's the race of the best players, if it's the race to actual titles and to treatment and facilities. And I kind of, I love seeing that in the women's game because it pushes everyone else to kind yeah. of bring it up. But I think Leon and then Chelsea, you know, Emma Hayes has been there for like nine or 10 years now. And she would always say from the moment she stepped in, she was told like, we want to build this team to be the best. We want to put the money in to be the best and you can see that with the squad that she has built there um and i think as well she's possibly slightly more interesting in that it, she didn't necessarily buy all the players straight away you know players like frank kirby english born bred through that system she leon is very much a team that has brought a lot of stars in whereas i think chelsea are maybe trying to build a few of their own as well which is nice to see because at the end of the day you know, you mentioned the thing about goalkeepers earlier. If you look at a player like Ellie Roebuck, who's on Manchester City, she's probably one of the top goalkeepers in the women's game, but and she's only 20, 21. The reason she's the top is she's had a goalkeeping coach since she was young. You know, most of the goalkeepers in women's football didn't actually have goalkeeping coaches until they mm. either turned semi-pro or professional. So it's instigating things like that. And that's what teams like Chelsea are really good at doing is those small things very early on that then transfer the players up the line to these big teams that are hopefully going to win lots of trophies. Mm. Yeah, the the goalkeeping coach is an interesting one because I think that was the answer I got from a couple of the current crop Irish players when I asked them about the, you know, the the goalpost situation or the goalkeeper situation, because I mean, <laughs> it's crazy that they don't have goalkeeper coaches up until senior level. Like yeah. you, you just, you just need to get that in place. Otherwise you're just not going to develop before we round this up then. Um, th- look, there's a lot of issues with the women's game as well. It's not just all rosy. There's obviously the, you know, the ongoing case between the women's national team in America and their association in terms of equal pay. And I think that, that's one of the situations it's actually quite black and white in my opinion you know they earn as much they bring in as much money they probably should get paid as much uh, but if you could choose probably one issue in the women's game right now that would be the biggest what would you say it is um i think it would be just getting it in front of people to be honest that whole Thing of making sure people are watching it or able to watch it or able to easily access information and fun facts about it you know we spend so much time in women's football talking about everything that's wrong with it that it would be nice to be able to easier talk about all the things that are good and like the player records and even when we did a list of the top uh, 50 women's footballers in the world and it took me so long just trying to make sure I had all the players' records right. So I think simple things like that, like making it easy for people to enjoy, making it easy for people to write about, that would probably, for me, be one of the bigger things. Mm. But as well, there's 
there's probably like a growing disparity between like the top levels of women's football and the lower levels. You know, we talk about the U.S. women's national team and them trying to get their pay, which they absolutely should. But then you look at, say, some of the South American teams who are like the stuff that they're going through just to even field a team. It's in, like incredible the stuff that goes on. And we think we've come so far. So I think it will be over time paying as much attention to those lower teams as it is and the things that they're going against, because they're probably in terms of their struggles, they're probably 20, 30 years behind all those other top teams and aren't constantly trying to just get on a pitch, whether it's paying it for themselves or whether it's like coaches behaving improperly like there's just there's so many issues in that end so I think that would probably be the massive one for me because I think the teams that are in our consciousness they're protected by that but those women's teams aren't so yeah was it the, was it the Hoffenheim coach that got in trouble it was Gladbach enough? I think Gladbach, Gladbach yeah. yeah god that was just it's just so hey you know preventable those kind of yeah, things exactly um, so yeah that was the, essentially I think the story was that he was sent to train the women's team as a punishment, wasn't it? Or something, something like that. Yeah, he had made some derogatory remarks and their punishment was, you need to go train the women's team. And the women's team were kind of like, well, no, you know, we're not here to kind of teach you a lesson or yeah. for you to be your learning curve, you know, do it some other way, which I thought was totally fair. And you had, you know, all the Germany players like Alex Pop and stuff supporting them. I think there was a letter written to the, German um, FA that was signed by all the Bundesliga and lower league players, the women's Bundesliga players, um, giving off about it. And it is interesting that like, even with that, I saw some support from some of the men's players and you are getting more and more of that, which as well, I think is really important. You know, I, you'll see whenever Chelsea have a big game, players like Azpilicueta will tweet and show a picture of him watching them. Or um, we saw during, El, just before the El Clasico, both teams stood with the Misma Passion. I don't know if you saw that like whole social media thing where no. basically one of the Real Madrid players had posted a picture of her side by side with the men's team and said like, same passion. And she oh, got yeah, so much that, abuse. Yeah. She, she was like, it was taken, she took it down. And then later on in the day, all the Real Madrid men's players started like picking out players from the women's team and posting photos with them. And it spread throughout La Liga and the Spanish leagues. And then on uh, during the Clasico, they had the two players line up with the banner underneath them. And then also I saw Ramos had like a t-shirt on during the game that said, this is my passion. So like stuff like that is so important because I think no matter how much I'd be like, women's football can stand on its own two feet as an entity. I think to get other people on board, stuff like having the men's teams and the men's players do that is really important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Marcus Rashford saw him tweeting about the women's team playing in Old Trafford for the first time and how they absolutely should. Like, it's a no-brainer in fairness. If I see some of the youth teams play in Old Trafford, why would the women's team not play there as well? Um, I suppose... Just before we finish up, one thing that I do want to get your take on is the conversation around the women's game. Because one thing that's difficult, and I, I think maybe it comes with the lack of knowledge as well, that a lot of the coverage of women's game is always, you know, what's it like being a woman in sport? <laughs> what's it like being a woman in, in, in football? Would you rather these issues are raised in interviews or would you rather they treat them exactly like the men? in terms of just asking them straight out what about about their uh, like their experiences i think there's a time and place for both so 
one of the what, last year after the Champions League final, I remember Penilla Harder was asked about her contract situation. So there was all these rumors that she was going to go to Chelsea, and it was straight after Champions League final. They just lost, and out, like the outrage that she had been asked that after a match. And I was like, that's such a normal question to ask. You know, like if one of the biggest players in the men's game had just lost the Champions League final and there were rumours, he was like, say, I don't know, Messi or something. And you would ask him, are you going to Man City? Are you staying with Barcelona or whatever it is? And I thought it was really funny seeing that reaction because I think it's probably one of the few times that now that more money is going into those contracts and stuff, women's football actually had a big transfer news line and people were invested in it and interested in it. I think I would like to see more around games and stuff and opportunities like that. Definitely more football analysis. And it's something that I know Sky and BBC have committed to doing um, is analyzing games and providing facts and information like before, during and after games. Um, And you see it a lot in commentary as well. Like people who are commentating on games, not to, like bash them around things like it's great that this coverage exists but they'll be talking about really random things about the players rather than what's actually happening in another pitch or you know what formation it is or who played in a certain position last week and now has moved to a different position and so I think in those contexts definitely I want to see more talk of the football but there is a time and a place I mean at the end of the day these inequalities do exist and to ignore them would be wrong so I think it's a fine balance and maybe one we're not hitting on yet but I hope with the the more that these things become accessible and people build their knowledge around the women's game we will be able to see a bit more of it you look at the US like their commentary teams tend to be quite bet, like a bit better at it but that's also because they have been commentating on these games for longer and they have been talking about women's football for longer so they kind of know what they're doing a bit more mm-hmm. well we might make this a regular thing over the next couple of months or next couple of years uh, in terms of you know just talking a bit more regularly about the women's game but until then Kathleen McNamee thanks for joining me today thank you Team 33 this is OTB Sports Radio now welcome back to Team 33 so that is all we have time for on this evening's show thanks to you as ever for listening if you want to listen back to any of that or you want to catch some of Kathleen McNamee's stuff on Off The Ball you can get them in the podcast network that's available in the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your podcast as well it's all available ready and waiting for you whenever you want it on the OTB Sports app or otbsports.com back again same time same place next week but until then take away Johan